Welcome to a special episode of the Global Dispatches podcast. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And each day this week, we are bringing you live coverage from the 76th United Nations General Assembly. The annual opening of the UN General Assembly is always one of the most important weeks on the diplomatic calendar, and this year the podcast has partnered with the United Nations Foundation to provide listeners with daily news and expert analysis to give you the context you need to understand what is driving the diplomatic agenda at the United Nations during this key week. We are recording today's episode live in the afternoon on Tuesday, September 21st. Today was the opening of what is known at the UN as the General Debate, in which world leaders gather at the General Assembly from that famous rostrum. So having covered the United Nations for over 15 years, I can say there is a familiarity to the opening of the General Debate. It always takes place on a Tuesday, and it always kicks off with Secretary General delivering a sort of state-of-the-world speech. And he is followed by a speech from the incoming president of the General Assembly, in this case, Abdullah Shahid of the Maldives. Then, by tradition, the president of Brazil speaks first, followed by the president of the United States. This year, like last year, there is a mix of in-person remarks and pre-recorded statements. In addition to Guterres and Biden, some speakers of note today included Moon Jae-in of South Korea, President Erdogan of Turkey, the new president of Iran, Ibrahim Raisi, who delivered a pre-recorded statement, and Xi Jinping is also delivering a pre-recorded statement today. Joining me to discuss key moments from this opening of the general debate is Richard Gowan, UN Director of the International Crisis Group, and Anjali Dayal, Assistant Professor of International Politics at Fordham University's Lincoln Center campus. Uh, welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. Uh, so let's start our conversation where today started with Antonio Guterres's opening remarks to the General Assembly. I want us to all listen to the first 15 seconds of his speech. You will see it sets a tone. Mr. President of the General Assembly, Excellencies, I'm here to sound the alarm. The world must wake up. We are on the edge of an abyss and moving in the wrong direction. Uh, Richard and Angeli, you will no doubt remember that last year Guterres invoked the horsemen of the apocalypse from the book of Revelation during his Unga address. Uh, this year, as far as I could tell, there was no direct invocation of Christian eschatology, uh, but the message was remarkably similar. Uh, Richard, first to you, what was your key takeaways from Guterres' speech? Well, I think this was very much Guterres setting out his agenda for his second term. Uh, as UN watchers will know, he secured a second term uh, back in the summer uh, with no serious opposition. And with the Trump administration in the rearview mirror, there is a sense that the Secretary General is planning to be a bit bolder in his approach to global affairs uh, during his second term than he could be um, since he took office in 2017. And yes, he gave a 
you know, pretty powerful, uh, deeply alarming uh, speech about the state of the world. And he told us that if we don't get a grip on climate change and new technologies, uh, we are in a heck of a lot of trouble. And I think that this was his, his effort to say, I'm back. I'm going to be more serious about these topics and global leaders should be too. Uh, what do you think, uh, Angela? I see you vigorously nodding your head. I agree. I think, you know, so much of what he's done over his first term has basically been management, trying to keep the U.S. somewhat to the table um, in, in sort of the basic activities of the U.N. It's been his job to sort of manage up to the Trump administration. And with that in the rearview mirror, but also at a time of clearly deepening crisis, really turning forward and saying like, this is it. Like this is this is the moment. We we don't have another opportunity to try and fix this. And I was really struck by his invocation of sort of this is what the UN was designed to do. We have these collective problems that we know we can't solve, and we're not meeting the moment. And in that sense, it was a very sort of straightforward, but also challenging thing to tell world leaders who are absolutely the ones not meeting the moment. And so in that sense, you know, it's both an empowerment, but also he at this point has nothing to lose. Um, he is basically saying, you're not doing what you need to to cooperate anyway. Mm. So, you know, this is where we need to go. I agree. You know, to me, this was almost like a secular Pope moment. Uh, you know, oftentimes, mostly those who deride the UN refer to the Secretary General as a secular Pope. But yeah, I don't think it's not like an inappropriate moniker in terms of what he was trying to do today. You know, he had this this line, I'm going to mangle it. Uh, but he basically said, you know, when it comes to COVID, you know, we passed the science test, meaning we got vaccines, but we got an F in ethics. Uh, we're unable to get those vaccines uh, to those who, who need them. I would say that it was notable. It was one of his pithier speeches. I mean, there were quite a lot of uh, zingers, if you will, like the line about the F in ethics. Um, you know, Guterres's track record as a speaker is mixed. Uh, he can be quite compelling. Uh, he can also be a bit staid, but he was definitely in compelling mode today. And I think, you know, talking to diplomats around the UN, especially Western diplomats, they have been saying, we need Guterres to step up. You know, we, we really do need him to be pushing us harder, but also, you know, talking about issues like human rights in a more prominent way. And I think they will have heard this speech and think, no, this is going in the right direction. Yeah, Angela, in terms of, of the pithiness, I saw you note on Twitter his line about, uh, you know, billionaires taking joy rides in, into space uh, while, you know, people starve here on Earth. Yeah, that was very pointed. There are only two people in the world that could refer to. So he obviously wanted them to hear that. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't mind uh, antagonizing Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. That's what's Jeff Bezos ever done for him. Yeah. Or, 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 or in fairness, Richard Branson. Um, oh. Who I, I remember seeing at a previous General Assembly. That is true. Fashion, that is true. But he wasn't in a spacecraft. Um, uh, so, so, Angela, so what does his speech today tell you about his priorities for the rest of the week? I think definitely um, both, both looking forward to COP26 
and towards um, sort of as much coordination as they can get on um, COVID-19 uh, during this week. So to secure as many commitments as they can from heads of state over the course of the week. There is uh, Thursday, I think the food distribution, um, the food system distribution conference all day, I think and that was another point that they hit repeatedly in, in relation to the billionaire zinger, right? The, 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 the flip side of that was that we're entering another era of like rising hunger. Um, and so in that sense, those three priorities seemed sort of linked, um, addressing COP26, uh, trying to get as much coordination as possible on COVID-19 and trying to really address inequality, particularly as it relates to um, issues like hunger, seemed to be sort of things he was laying out for the week. Uh, so let's turn to, to Biden's speech now. Here we have Joseph R. Biden Jr., committed multilateralist, regular hand around the United Nations. He knows them, they know him. Uh, delivering his his first speech. Uh, Richard, I know in a Politico piece published uh, yesterday, you articulated what he needed to achieve with this speech. How do you think his speech uh, was received uh, around the United Nations today? Well, I think the first thing to say is that you could have listened to Biden's speech and think he has the same ghostwriter as Antonio Guterres. Because actually, firstly, he took a very similar tone. Biden opened up saying we are at a moment of choice and we can choose between wrecking the planet um, and working together and we should work together. Um, he then hit very much the same issues that Guterres had hit. He focused a lot on COVID. He focused a lot on climate change and he talked a lot about some of the humanitarian challenges which Anjali was just referring to. And it was really interesting to hear a US president, you know, really focusing hard on global threats and focusing hard on the need to cooperate on global threats in terms very, very similar uh, to the UN Secretary General. Um, I mean, Obviously, we have had to endure four years of Trump speeches, um, which were all over the place and usually quite offensive. So the speech, I think, you know, went down very well with diplomats who had suffered through his predecessor's work. But I mean, I, I was quite I mean, I, I was really quite struck by the sort of commonality of um, messages coming from uh, Guterres and, and Biden. Yeah, I mean. To me, it seems there is something almost soothing after these four years of platitudes on multilateralism and global cooperation. You know, even you know, if in action the United States is not always there, just hearing the the right rhetoric for once from the president, uh, I thought was helpful and at least a signal that the United States is, of course, yes, ready to, you know acknowledge that there are a set of global problems around the world that require global solutions and the UN can be a useful platform for that. Uh, Angeli, what were your key takeaways from Biden's speech? Similarly, I was struck by how deeply he sort of hit the multilateralism point home, essentially leading with and sustaining throughout the idea that we are at an inflection point where we can only solve some of these existential problems in cooperation. And in that sense, there's a sort of classic U.S. divide between things that the U.S. wants to do with the U.N. and things that the U.S. does not want the rest of the U.N. to be involved in. 
And even within that framework, I was surprised by how forthright he was about Afghanistan throughout. Um, there are very few ways to sort of mitigate the the humanitarian disaster, um, like rhetorically, that Afghanistan is facing right now. And I appreciated at least from one perspective that he didn't attempt to minimize them. Um, so I think that was sort of notable as well, even as he did not necessarily outline a new multilateral role for the United Nations in sort of key US security priorities. Um, there was some clear sort of like old sort of classically liberal um, points, aggressive diplomacy, returning to um, the table on a whole range of issues that traditionally the US has liked to go to the UN on. But so in that sense, he didn't necessarily strike new multilateral ground so much as emphasize that this is the set of problems we need to work with you on. And we are invested in working on those, even as there was less of an attempt to shy away from some of these other issues. I would also point out uh, that perhaps like the newsiest thing from his speech was a commitment or an announcement that the United States would double from its currently committed amount, uh, the amount of money that it will make available to support climate uh, action in the developing world. So just uh, like a little bit of background, back in 2009, uh, the world committed, and the United States as a part of the world, <laughs> that uh, the they would commit $100 billion to support climate action, mitigation, adaptation in the developing world as part of this grand bargain to support you know, a, 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 a better climate future for all. The world has come woefully short of that. Uh, yet in this speech, uh, the United States, Biden just, you know, just pledged to increase that amount. Uh, even if it's increased, I saw analysis suggesting it would be $11.4 billion, which is not like a huge sum, but I think it's still nonetheless significant that he would use the Unga rostrum to make this uh, announcement. Uh, Richard, I don't know, how do you interpret that announcement? Well, I think prior to the General Assembly, we had noticed that you know, leaders from poorer countries had been sending out some pretty well-coordinated messages about the rich world's failure to help the poor world. And very specifically, they had been talking, firstly, quite obviously, about um, the lack of vaccines. Um, for COVID available in regions like Africa. And secondly, they had been hitting this point about climate financing and the massive gap between the West's promises of um, climate financing and what has actually been delivered. And I think that we will still be hearing over the next few days, leaders from Africa, leaders from other developing countries, really hammering home that they are owed this cash in blunt terms. But Biden has slightly taken the sting out of that critique by firstly saying we will do more on climate financing. And secondly, uh, tomorrow there will be a US-led summit on um, you know, getting vaccines to 70% of the world's population uh, over the next 12 months. So the US has shown that it's listening to developing countries and you know those countries do make up the bulk of General Assembly members. Yeah, and, and Angela, 
are were there any like key geopolitical takeaways from you from uh the the speech today you know he never mentioned china by name he did mention uh, uh, uh the uh the, the uyghur genocide not by name he didn't say genocide he mentioned i think human rights in xinjiang uh as you know a a challenge for the world but you know in previewing the remarks um the u.s administration various state department officials you know always included that in his top three priorities the top three messages that you know promoting human rights and democracy would be one of them uh, and it was just interesting to hear, on the one hand, uh, Guterres in his earlier remarks warning uh, about a catastrophe that would befall the world if a new Cold War emerges between the United States and China, and uh, you know Biden recommitting uh, itself to you know peace and security issues in the Indo-Pacific region. Yeah, to some extent, that sort of, and I think he may even have. Ex Joseph Biden may even have said that he wasn't out in search of another Cold War yeah. um, explicitly. But to some extent, what I thought was really interesting is how much his language and rhetoric sounded like George H.W. Bush in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War. This idea that the emphasis is really on particular kinds of values and particular kinds of things the U.S. can bring to the world. So not mentioning China by name, for instance, but really sliding in what was possibly like a backhanded um, jab at uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, for instance, um, and not mentioning China by name, but talking about strategic priorities um, in the Indo-Pacific and talking about human rights violations in the Indo-Pacific. So in that way, it really is, um, it really is a sort of uh, way of emphasizing like the positive American agenda um, at the expense of the competition, which doesn't mean that the competition is in shadowing the entire space anyway. Something I was really struck by was for people who maybe don't pay so much attention to, to this forum, um, their big takeaway was that he never mentioned China by name. And so that's the thing they were looking for. Um, but that clearly was deliberate. It was clearly a choice to rhetorically frame what the US can and does want to do um, as being not sort of directly oppositional, even as it's clearly designed to counter a particular vision of um, Chinese power. Yeah, and I should say, or sorry, Richard, do you want to jump in? No, I, would, I would just say it is worth comparing that with Trump's speech last year, which was only about nine minutes long. And I think three of those minutes were just given over to a point by point tirade about why he didn't like China, you know, ranging from Beijing's handling of COVID to um, plastic pollution in the sea. Uh, you know, Biden actually had to walk a very fine line here, which was he needed to send the message, you know, we're still competing with China and the world should follow us without just sounding like an absolutely crazed sinophobe. And um, I, I actually think that he handled that um, pretty smartly. I mean, I think it was the, the part of the speech we were all listening out for, um, and it was done well. Uh, and I should note that the demands of recording a live episode during UNGA are such that as we are speaking now, I believe so too is Xi Jinping delivering a, a pre-recorded message to uh, the General Assembly. Um, Richard, you know, speaking about this idea of, of like pre-recorded messages to to the General Assembly, you know, how much does the fact that this anga is mostly virtual impact outcomes from the week? 
You know, for example, I've seen Biden say many times that foreign policy is the natural extension of personal relations. You know, this amounts to a Biden doctrine. And, you know, and the so-called diplomatic speed dating that happens at UNGA is you know, a good moment to nurture and, and test those relationships. Uh, you know, but wanting to set a good example, Biden held, I think, just two bilats uh, today, one with Iraq, one with Australia, and then, you know, jetted back to to Washington, D.C. Unlike, you know, years past where particularly Democratic presidents would kind of camp out in New York for the week. Um, so how much does the fact that because of COVID, Biden's participation in New York is extremely limited? How does that impact like outcomes from from this week? Well, I think it's worth saying Secretary of State Blinken is staying at least until Thursday. So he will be handling a lot of the bilats. And I think more broadly, looking beyond the US, uh, what I would emphasize right now, sitting on Third Avenue, is that this feels a lot more like a regular UN General Assembly than we had expected. I mean, after all, the US had been urging other countries to stay away or to minimize their delegations to a handful of people. We've we've still got, you know, roughly a hundred world leaders here. Um, Third Avenue, Second Avenue, right now are blocked up with motorcades. And we know that a lot of the bilateral meetings, uh, a lot of the quiet shopping trips on Madison Avenue, you know, the stuff that people really care about at the General Assembly, that's all happening again. So I had thought this was going to be a bit of a dud. To be honest, I thought that this was all going to be virtual, um, and uh, I was I was wrong. I mean, leaders do want to come to the UN, and you know, have the closest thing that you can have to fun in a multilateral setting. Um, and I think that's actually very positive for the organisation because it does show that it's still a bit of a magnet, um, which you know was in doubt in 2020 when everyone was just sitting at home talking into a screen. Uh, Angela, how do you think this, this hybrid format uh, impacts you know, diplomacy during the week? Yeah, I think um, Richard told foreign policy that it was, it was likely to be a wet squib, which they, which they printed as wet squid initially. Um, but it might be both, right? Um, it could have ended up as either, right? And in fact, I think the hybrid format actually enables some leaders to get their point across more clearly than they would in person. I think you saw that particularly um, with the Iranian president. Um, they were clearly, that was a situation in which pre-editing um, clearly produced a very different and tight set of statements than I think live delivery would because live delivery requires actual interaction with the room. And in that sense, you can really, I mean, all of that statement was essentially focused about around the US. And an audience, even a diplomatic audience, a polite audience, will respond and give you a different kind of energy than simply reading that kind of message to a screen. And in that sense, you know, you get that sort of dimension of the, the hybrid event, a sort of stage-managed version of that. And then you also end up with this live version where sometimes unpredictable things happen. I was waiting to see who would move away from Bolsonaro when he got up to the to the rostrum because he's like famously not vaccinated, but they all had their poker faces on, were very still the whole time. Well, there were rumors. <laughs> there were rumors that the reason Biden yeah. was late was because he didn't want to like have to run into uh, to Bolsonaro backstage. 
<laughs> I'm surprised they didn't bring out a little like handheld fan and move the air <laughs> away. <laughs> um, so, Anjali, lastly, mm -hmm. uh, for you, what else are you looking towards this week? Any other events or diplomatic moments or encounters that you will be particularly looking out for? Personally, I like to to pay attention with what small island nations are doing at um, at at the General Assembly. I think over the last couple of years, small island nations have delivered some of the more um, impassioned speeches about global failures uh, to cooperate around climate, but also have been amongst the most hopeful voices about climate. And so in that sense, you know, this is a unique forum for them to put this problem before a world body that can actually potentially do something about it. And so I want to sort of be listening for that and seeing where they're going this mm. year. And Richard, to you, what uh, are you looking towards the uh, towards the rest of the week? Any storylines or encounters or events that you'll be particularly following or looking out for? Well, I think the the one I will be focusing on most is coming tomorrow, and that is this meeting uh, that I think we touched on earlier, which the U.S. is convening to get countries to pledge to supply more COVID vaccines to the developing world or pledge money uh, to support uh, the fight against COVID. Because actually that's the meeting where we will see if the US can get other countries to support it um, in the fight against the pandemic. I mean, everyone was going to applaud Biden today. And um, he did speak, I think, very effectively about US leadership. But the proof is in the pudding, um, or the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Um, and what we need to see is if countries will actually respond to this sort of demonstration of US leadership by making genuine, worthwhile new commitments of vaccines and cash to the fight against COVID. Beyond that, um, uh, yesterday was my birthday. Uh, hmm. It's really unfair. Happy that my, birthday. My, my birthday <laughs> always always clashes with the General Assembly. So what I'm really looking forward to doing is getting to the end of the week and seeing the kids properly, rather than worrying about um, who is speaking in what order. <laughs> And what meetings you need to run off to. And I know we need to, to let you go in a couple of minutes. I do have one unplanned question for you. I'm seeing over the transom here that in his remarks, uh, President Xi said that China will not build new coal-fired power projects abroad, which seems to be a news and announcement. Quick quick reaction, Richard. Uh, I think there is a history of Xi Jinping making very good comments on environmental issues at the General Assembly that don't always translate into reality. But, um, you know, that is a very, that's, you know, that's, a, that's a pledge, it will be, you know, pretty obvious whether China sticks to it or not. So, you know, good. Um, uh, the forcing effect of having to speak at the General Assembly, you know, can sometimes make a difference. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Anjali. Thank you so much, Richard. And I, I know, uh, Richard, you just referenced the uh, COVID event hosted by the United States tomorrow. That will be the subject of, of one of our segments tomorrow. So stay tuned for that. Thank you for your time. I have followed both of your work for many years. It is a thrill for me to be able to chat with you and riff with you on this, the Tuesday of Onga. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much. It was, it's always great to chat.
Okay, so uh, thank you again, Richard and Angeli. Uh, we will be back tomorrow for day three of our special UNGA coverage featuring, among other things, as I just mentioned, uh, a discussion of the outcomes of that COVID summit convened by the United States. And we'll have some other special guests as well. Follow or subscribe to the podcast to get that episode as soon as it is published tomorrow. And I'll see you then. Today's episode was produced in partnership with the United Nations Foundation. Special thanks to Rajesh Merchandani of the UN Foundation and to our production team, Julie Magliacci and Daniel Cherney of Revent. If you have questions for me, tips or comments, or want to connect, uh, please just hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And if you are someone who has a professional interest in knowing what is happening during UNGA, uh, share this with your colleagues and, and friends. Uh, I'm excited about what we have in store the rest of the week, and we'll see you tomorrow. Bye.